Well, the only announcements I'm aware of this evening is that we're going to continue to have class at the normal schedule on Sunday morning and also Tuesday night at 7.30 and Thursday night at 7.30, Sunday morning at 10.30. Uh, this Sunday morning, though, we'll be sending out an, an email that will list the two hymns that we will sing, not the closing hymn, but the two hymns that we will sing. I'll have the words on the screen, and we will have music that will be playing so that we can add a music element to the uh, morning worship service on Sunday morning. Also, I'll be focusing on something I didn't quite get to the last time, which is why does God allow suffering? Why is there evil in the world, and what are God's purposes for suffering? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we open God's Word together this evening, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture describes this as walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, abiding in Christ. But when we sin, we breach that fellowship, that rapport with God, that partnership, that association with God in our spiritual life and spiritual growth is broken. The way to recover is by simply confessing, admitting, acknowledging the sin in our life, what we have sinned, not just saying, Lord, I've sinned, but identifying the sin. And whatever sins we forget about, whatever sins we're ignorant of, God is faithful and just to forgive us of the sins we confess, and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with some silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we come together to worship you, the living God. You are God who is the source of life. And we thank you for another day where we have life, where we can serve you, where we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, where we can serve you. We thank you because you are the God who makes this possible. And we live in a day that where there is on the part of some fear, anxiety, because of this virus, because of the unknown, because of the way it has upended our regular uh, schedules, our regular life, our jobs, our families. And, Father, we pray that we might put our focus, our attention upon you, for your word is sufficient that no matter what happens, that you are going to take care of us, you will sustain us, you will provide for us. And this is a test for each of us, a test to refocus our priorities upon our own spiritual life, upon our family's spiritual life, refocusing the way in which we spend our time so that we can make time consistently for your word and that when we come out of this, we can look back and say this was a time that you used to really uh, uh, maximize our spiritual growth and our spiritual life. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for those in Kiev, those in Ukraine, those in the Philippines, those down in Brazil, Uh, Many others that we pray for, we pray that you would provide for them, strengthen them, keep them all healthy and strong, Father. And for us, we pray that you might continue to keep us focused upon your word and that we might be reminded of it over and over again through each day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we're continuing a study that we began in the last 
in the last chapter, last lesson here on Second Peter, and that is beginning to deal with the issue of the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. This is so critical for today, and especially when we're facing the unknown. A lot of the fear, a lot of the panic is just because of the unknown. And yet in the history of Christianity, it is when the church has been, fe- for, uh, has been faced with the unknown, with disease, with plagues, with wars, with economic instability, with all kinds of differences, different things that have put pressure on them. It is Christians with the word of God in their soul that have risen to the surface that because of their love and care for one another and corporately their love for those who are not believers, and on the other hand, because unbelievers, the pagan, the unbeliever does not have the resources to explain suffering, to explain adversity. That's why I'm talking about this on Sunday morning. But the unbeliever doesn't have those resources, but the believer does, so we can have a relaxed mental attitude, we can keep our focus on the Lord, and we can have joy, peace, tranquility, contentment as the fruit of the Spirit, and this makes a difference. So this is a tremendous opportunity for us to be a witness and also to witness to others, because we know that God controls history, and God's in charge, and this didn't surprise him. It may be a surprise to us. Maybe we haven't been as prepared as we thought we should be, but it's no surprise to God, and in his grace, he will sustain us. And when we get to Thanksgiving next year, it will be interesting to learn some of the stories from people of how God used them, sustained them, and provided for them during this uh, during this time. So open your Bibles with me to Second Peter Chapter one, Second Peter chapter one, and we've been looking at this chapter as the introduction to this epistle. And this chapter uh, is going to end at the end of verse 21. But as we come to the end, what we learn is there is a focus more and more on truth, more and more on the truth that God has provided. We go back to verse 12, which is the second part of the introduction where Paul, uh, Peter says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. See, in times of crisis, we, kind of, we have to hear the promises again and again. We have to be driven back to the word. We have to be reminded. We have to have the discipline, the self-discipline to open up our laptops, log in and live stream, or if that's not a convenient time to to watch the videos later, it, it really is going to call everyone to step up uh, to their spiritual life. It's not just the habit of going to church and seeing and being seen. It is focusing on the Word. And so Peter says, uh, I'm going to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. That should be translated, as I show on the screen, you're stable by means of the present truth. It is the truth of God's word. Truth is under attack, not not things that are true, but the concept of truth, the concept of an overriding truth, of an absolute truth, of an inerrant, infallible truth is under tremendous attack in the world today, and it has been for the last 300 years. 400 years, going back to the early 1600s and the rise of what became known as the period of the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. It was during that period from 1600 to 1900 that you really had the rise of what is known as modernism. And we'll talk about that a little more. But at least in the Age of Enlightenment, in the Age of Reason, they thought there was truth. They couldn't agree as to what it was. They couldn't agree what the foundation was, at least for two-thirds of that period. But they agreed that there was some sort of unifying truth. It wasn't until after the late 1700s that you have the concept of truth begin to fall apart. By the time it completely implodes at the end of the 19th century, by 1900, you have the rise, really, of postmodernism. Most, most people don't think that came along until after World War II, but its foundations, the shift occurred 
early in the 20th century. So we've studied this in the last previous lessons on truth versus fable, truth versus legend, truth versus the fantasies that the unbeliever, the pagan, uh, uh, believes in in order to make his life work. But in times of crisis, that falls apart. This is what happened in Rome. We'll talk about this in more detail Sunday morning. You have the uh, the Antonine plagues, you have the Justinian plagues, and in the Roman Empire, about a third of the people in Italy died. And so they're just, just absolutely devastated. That had incredible economic consequences for the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. People put it on their morality, but actually what happens is very similar to what is happening in our culture today, happened after World War II, is that you have... Uh, have a because of the plague you have a loss of of your of your workers and so they had to bring in the barbarians uh, to move down into Italy and hire them to do common labor just at the end of World War II the Germans the whole younger generation the late teens 20s 30s were wiped out in the war same in France as they, so they brought in uh, labor from from Turkey from the Balkans from North Africa, and that laid a foundation for the problem we have with Islam in, is, in uh, e- Europe today. But we'll save most of that for, for Sunday morning. Anyway, the issue is truth. Do we believe there is truth, or do we believe in some sort of relativism? And I covered that last time and talked about the tyranny of relativism. And it's interesting, if you watch some politicians talking about this coronavirus I heard Governor Cuomo in New York the other day, and it sounded like he had been mugged by reality because what he was saying was accurate, honest. He wasn't grandstanding. He wasn't uh, going against blaming everything on the president. He was talking about factual realities on the ground, what people needed to do, what they didn't need to do, and what he was doing. And that's uh, at some point you can't live on the basis of your fantasy anymore unless you're completely psychotic and divorced from reality. So Second Peter one twelve, we have stability by means of the truth. This is the issue. And I looked at passages like John eight thirty two, where Jesus says, You shall know the truth. This is a term for scripture, that which God has revealed, not truth from from rationalism or empiricism or mysticism, but the truth, that which is revealed by God, and it is that truth that will make you free. It will free you in the soul from the penalty of sin. It will free you from slavery to sin. And it will free your thinking so that even if you're a slave, you can think in terms of freedom. John fourteen seventeen, we see that the spirit of the truth is the phrase in the Greek. It has the article. And the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity responsible for revelation. John 16, 13, however, when he, the spirit of the truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth. This is for the disciples, that he would give them the revelation they needed, much of which was inscripturated. Then in Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, 17, and 19, he prays to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth, Your word is truth. It is the truth. And for their sakes, he prays, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by means of truth. And even though those last two uses do not have an article in the Greek, it refers to the word with the article in John 17, 17. So they're all speaking of a a definite uh, concept. How do we know it's true? Number one, because it's the revealed word of God. That's what Peter argues. And second, because God confirmed it through what they saw and what they heard. See, what they see, what they hear, rationalism and empiricism are uh, subordinated to revelation. Revelation comes first, and then it, it is not contrary. It does not go against reason or empiricism. But reason and empiricism must be subordinate to divine revelation. So we looked at this chart. I'll just briefly review. In Revelation, we know it originates from the one true living God, the voice of heaven in 117, not from the will of man. The Holy Spirit moved the writers of Scripture in 120, 
And then the second point, it's objective light, so that there's objective truth, there's objective knowledge. This is what was rejected starting with Immanuel Kant at the end of the uh, of the Enlightenment period, at the end of the 1700s. And then third, there's confirmatory evidence, which conforms to revelation, and it has a confirmatory value. God always confirms it, and also that revelation is linear. Now, myth, all pagan myth, all false ideas, all uh, myth that comes along as a result of suppressing truth and unrighteousness originates solely from human thought, fantasy, or legends. We could add to that it can originate from satanic or demonic influence as well. It is shaped by irrational concepts, which are identified in some of the literature as true myth, or it's also called factitious. And Christian scholars pick up those terms, and they use that to describe the first 11 chapters of Genesis, as well as some of the uh, miracles that occurred during the time of Christ, during the life of Christ. Third, we saw that myth is polytheistic instead of monotheistic. You may say, well, we're not polytheistic, we're atheistic. What you're worshiping are the many different aspects of God's creation still, and you're worshiping the many different uh, idols of the mind, the abstract idols of the mind. So even though you may be an atheist, you're still worshiping something, and you are still polytheistic. Fourth, it's cyclical. All Non-Christian influence views of history are just endless cycles, repetition, and they're not linear, whereas biblically God is taking history in a specific direction. So the result is that relativists must hate and despise those that hold to the absolutes because they are truth suppressors. So they're going to hate us because they hate the truth. We stand for the truth. We stand for God. Therefore, we are the object of their scorn. We are the object of their hatred. They do not like what we believe, and they seek to destroy it. This is the tyranny of relativism. So we started with the topic of what the Bible teaches about inspiration, infallibility, and the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, a lot of what I am teaching on this, I've taught this before. In fact, if you go back to, uh, if you go back to the first Peter, starting in lessons 36 and following, there's a much more detailed approach to this, dealing with a lot of different aspects related to the importance of inerrancy and inspiration and infallibility. But here I'm going to reorganize it a little bit, and I want us to think in terms of what are the three key verses that help us to understand how God revealed himself to us. There's three key verses. This this provides the foundation for this whole doctrine of inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility. There are many other verses that relate, but these are the three foundational ones. So just try to get that in your mind, these three three verses. So the first one, of course, is the passage we're in, 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21. We ended there last time, but I want to review it. And this is a passage that tells us that all Scripture originated in the mind of God, not in the mind of man. This is not something that man came up with. When it talks about no no private interpretation, means no individual interpretation. doesn't mean they originated this. It is that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who put this into their minds. We get into the use of the phrase inspiration, the breathing in of something. Well, Scripture is really breathed out by the writers of Scripture, but the words, the ideas, the guidance is breathed into them by God the Holy Spirit. So let's just read the verse. Knowing this first, and this would be uh, translated as a, a causal participle, because you know this, this is the foundation for his uh, exhortations in the previous verses because you know this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So that second verse 
that prophecy never came by the will of man means it was never originated by man. It originated uh, from the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, uh, where it says, no prophecy of any private interpretation, private interpretation is explained by verse 21 as being as not being not originating with them but originating with the holy spirit and so the beginning of this verse he says know this first this is a greek word which is used in logic to describe the primary unprovable but uh, it, but propositions, the solid propositions on which something is built. And we build everything on the Scripture. Without the Scripture, it's without inerrancy and infallibility, it is, well, there goes my microphone. Without inspiration and infallibility, there is no biblical Christianity. Once you throw that out, you don't know what is true or not. You're going to take this verse as true, that verse is true. Well, I like this verse, but let's scratch out that clause. That's what a lot of people do with a lot of different social issues. But once you take one clause, one phrase, one sentence, one verse out, then you are redefining God, and that is a form of rebellion against God and a form of idolatry, self-idolatry, making yourself out to be God. Okay, I think I've got the microphone fixed. So this is first in um, in the Old Testament. The way this Greek word was used in translating the Septuagint is this is what precedes everything else. It is it is the foundation. It's the presupposition. It, it is what everything else is is built upon. And the New Testament uses that word in the same way. So it fo- focuses us on the authority. Of Scripture, not Scripture plus tradition. That's Greek Orthodoxy. That's Roman Catholicism. That's not biblical Christianity. It is the Scripture and Scripture alone that is our source of authority. As soon as some people reject inspiration, they reject uh, inerrancy, and they say, "Well, I believe in the authority of Scripture." Well, what does that mean for them? Well, they're really putting the authority of the interpretation of Scripture on their church tradition. When you say you believe in the authority of Scripture, you're saying you believe in the one who gave it, and that is God. And if it is God, then it is going to be without without error. So this is the first thing that we see. Second thing that we see is that it's no... The, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In the Greek, it's convoluted in terms of English, literally it says every prophecy of Scripture does not originate from man. So we switch it around and say that prophecy is not of any private interpretation. So it doesn't originate, derive, come into being from an individual's own opinions, own interpretation. The words that are used here then are the words Pharaoh, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And this is a word, the verb is on the uh, the first way it is used, never came. That is the word uh, Pharaoh as an heiress passive indicative. It never came by the will of man. But the men of God spoke as they were, as they were moved. This is a present passive participle. So both of them as passives indicate that the individuals are receiving this. They're not doing it themselves. They are passive to the work of God the Holy Spirit. The NET translates it for no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And it, my translation, for no prophecy was ever carried along. I like that use there, carried along by the will of man. But men spoke from God when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Ought to be translated with the same verbiage both places. It makes more sense and gets across the Holy Spirit's idea. In Acts twenty-seven seventeen. We have the word used in its literal sense related to uh, a ship. And this is the shipwreck that Paul was on. And so they, uh, they were, they, they were grounded and they ran aground on the Sirtis sands and then they struck sail. 
So they were carried along just by the currents, and that's the idea that these men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were not originating these ideas from themselves. Now, one of the things that's interesting I ran across, this is a summary from a series of, of commentaries called Exegetical Summaries by, and this one is by Strange, and he says the writer's aim was to deny that the prophets themselves were the source from which their message originated. That's the word biblical commentary. See, what this exegetical summary series does is it summarizes the different views that are presented in the commentaries, and so it lists those. But I found this interesting. Word biblical commentary says the aim here is to deny that the prophets were the source of of their message. Then, according to the NET translation, he says, prophecies came from God. They were not inventions of the prophets themselves. And then he says, the author denies the charge that the prophets gave their own human interpretations to the signs, dreams, and visions they received. I'm not sure what the HB refers to. There's so many different works that that uh, describes, but word biblical commentary states that as well. And then the fourth is, no scriptural prophecy was ever the result of a prophet first conceiving what he wanted the interpretation to be and then framing his prophecy accordingly. That's from a conservative Lutheran, uh, Linsky's uh, commentary. In the early first century, in the early part of the 20th century, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield was the head of the theology department at Princeton University. Princeton was the fortress that defended the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of bibliology, of infallibility, inspiration, and inerrancy, and he was the chief theologian at Princeton. And he's quoted quite a bit in Chafer's Systematic Theology, One of the reasons Chafer has so many quotes in his theology, some of you have read parts of it, is because he's showing that dispensational premillennialism is not heretical, and so he is showing that we believe the same thing in every other area of Scripture as these men. Uh, Where we differ is on the distinction between Israel and the church and on a grace salvation, and, of course, on dispensationalism. So Warfield said... In this singularly precise and pregnant statement, there are several things which require to be carefully observed. There is first of all the emphatic denial that prophecy, that is to say, on the hypothesis upon which we are working, Scripture. So first of all, the emphatic denial that Scripture owes its origin to human initiative. No, quote, no prophecy ever was brought or came is the word used in the English version text, which with was brought in the revised version margin by the will of man. Then there is the equally emphatic assertion that its source lies in God. So he's making two points. First of all, the emphatic denial that Scripture owes its origin to human initiative, then the equally emphatic assertion that its source lies in God. It was spoken by men indeed, but the men who spoke it, quote, spake, spake from God. Okay, and a remarkable clause is here inserted and thrown forward in, this, in the sentence that stress may fall upon it, which tells us how it could be that men in speaking should speak not from themselves but from God. It was, quote, as born as is the same word which was rendered was brought above and might possibly be rendered brought here by the Holy Spirit. Strong statement. Some, let's sum it up. Second Peter 1, 20, 21 states that God the Holy Spirit is the agent of revealing Scripture, not man. It doesn't originate with man. It has nothing to do with the individual's personal opinions. It all comes from God the Holy Spirit. And he used human beings to give us a completely truthful Bible. 1 Corinthians 2.10 tells us, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. I can go through quote after quote to back that up. Many times you have Psalms that are written by David, that are quoted in the New Testament and attributed to God the Holy Spirit. For God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. The the them in this verse is Old Testament Scripture. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things 
of God. Passages you could look at, 2 Samuel 23, 2 and 3. Mark 12, 36. Acts 1, 16. Acts 28, 25. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Let me review those. 2 Samuel 23, 2 and 3. Mark 12, 36. Acts 1, 16. Acts 28, 25. John 14, 26. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Look those up. And since everybody seems to be at home now, you can talk those over with your kids, with your wife, Read those together uh, in the Scripture. Zephaniah 7.12. So it's an Old Testament teaching as well. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, talking about the Israelites. They hardened their hearts against God, rejected what God said, disobeyed the law, brought divine discipline on themselves. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. The Holy Spirit spoke through his prophets. Now, this is great for us. When we're in any kind of difficulty personally, it can be a personal crisis or it can be a difficult challenge. It can be the result of a, of a disaster, which we're used to here on the Gulf Coast, a hurricane. It can be a blizzard in the north. It can be any number of things, a financial collapse. We're going to have a number of different things that come into our lives as a result of this. But God is stable. God stabilizes us, and God, through his Spirit, has given us eternal truth that was just as vital 2,000, 3,000 years ago as it is today, just as true. Now, the second passage. First passage, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. The second key passage is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I've put 15 in here for the context. In this verse, we read from Paul. This is his last epistle, his last letter that we know of to Timothy. He is about to die. Now, it was interesting last week at the Chafer Conference when Andy Woods was going through various things. He made the point that 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, both are the last letters of those apostles. In both of them, they deal with truth. In both of them, they deal with the truth of the Scripture. In both of them, they warn of coming false teachers. And we are in an era where we have a lot of false teachers. So Paul tells Timothy and reminds him of his childhood because his mother and his grandmother were quite devout and they were believers and they taught him the scripture from youth. Now, folks, I know there's a lot of parents, there's a lot of grandparents that are that are listening. There are a lot of folks in the, in the church. This is a critical thing, a critical time for you to make sure all of your children are saved, to g- take time in the coming week, to talk to them about the gospel. Make sure they understand it. Make sure every one of your kids understands the gospel. And continuously talk to them. They Maybe they're a little young, but there's, you know, tell them. Even if they're just babies, tell them that God loves them and Jesus died for their sins. You're shaping that message into their, into their brain. And just say it over, teach them over and over again. Remind them of that. I, as far as I can remember and put together where I was going to church when I was six years old. We moved to a new building on Mother's Day of 1958. 59. I can never do the math. 59. I was six. I was about to turn seven. 59. And it was Mother's Day. And I can pretty much peg where we were living because a couple of weeks later we moved. So I know where we lived. It, it was either that Sunday or the next Sunday, but it had to have been that Sunday. And the pastor gave a Mother's Day message, which he rarely did. But somewhere in that message, he must have emphasized what I just did, the importance of parents continuously teaching the gospel to their kids, making sure they understand it, even when you think they're too young to understand it. I've known of two-year-olds who have understood the gospel because they've heard it so much from their 
their mother or their dad, but give them the gospel. Make sure they're make sure they're saved. And my parents gave me the gospel that Sunday after church, and I trusted in Christ as my Savior and couldn't wait to tell my best friend down the street, ran down there uh, to play that afternoon and gave him the gospel, told him how he could have eternal life. So I encourage you, make sure you tell the gospel to your kids. That will do wonders in helping them handle and learn the word and handle what's coming in this situation. We don't know what's coming, but we should prepare for the worst because then if it doesn't occur, it's all much, much better. So from childhood, Paul says, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. A great summary of the gospel, faith in Christ. And then he says, all scripture. Now, what was the scripture that his mother and his grandmother relied on? Was it the New Testament? No. It was the Old Testament scriptures. It was the the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And so Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for four things, teaching, that is instruction, for reproof, telling you that's wrong. You have a wrong idea. Get rid of it. That's the correction part. Get rid of the wrong idea. Replace it with the truth. And for training, discipline in righteousness, in living experientially righteous, living in obedience to the Word of God. And the result of this is that the man of God, and that doesn't exclude women, it's not a sexist phrase, it is that any person who is godly uh, may be adequate. And that's a weak word, but it is that he will have everything he needs. This is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Adequate, equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not some good works, not most, but every good work. So that it's the Word of God that equips us. It is not the Word of God plus psychology. It is not the Word of God plus sociology. It's not the Word of God plus plus uh, motivational teaching. It is the Word of God. And today we live in a world where, as a uh, Dr. Woods pointed out last week, you have people like Andy Stanley, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, the son of a, of a great Baptist expositor, Charles Stanley, who teaches that you don't need to teach verse by verse. That's just a cop out for people who, who, uh, can't really preach and can't really teach about current, current things. That, that it's too easy to just go verse by verse. Well, God revealed himself verse by verse, so to understand him, we need to go verse by verse. And Andy Stanley is one of the great false teachers of our generation, and we need to be warned about them. That's what Peter's about to warn us of in the next chapter. So we look at the key words here. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It, it really means it's breathed out by God. Often we talk about Shakespeare being inspired. We think of Milton and his magnum opus, Paradise Lost, which he was blind by that time, and he just uh, had it all put together inside of his brain and dictated it. And it's, it's massive. And the edition I have, it's 250 pages long. And he just quoted that, just read it out, just just absolutely... Absolutely brilliant. He was inspired, but this is different. This is God as the source, breathing out his word through the writers of Scripture. So it is all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable. It will give you value. It will give value to your spiritual life and your, your whole life because you'll be able to face challenges and handle them and solve problems and difficulties, and you will understand what's really going on in the world, and you will not uh, be, uh, you will not fear, you will not lose your peace, you will not be unstable, because you understand the truth of God's Word. And it is uh, 
for the purpose of being complete. That's the word on the lower left, artios, fully qualified. And notice the word on the right, it's ex artizo. See that A-R-T-I in the middle of that word? That comes from the word on the left. So it's, it has a prepositional prefix, ex, and the ending of a verb on the right. So we're complete. We're fully qualified, fully complete, fully equipped for most good works. No, some good works. No, every good works. That's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, that the Scripture is all we need. It is not, just as it is not Christ plus something, faith plus something, it is not the Bible plus something. It is the Bible alone. The rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, Latin for only the Scripture or the Scripture alone, because they understood this concept of the sufficiency of Scripture. We just need to know the Bible and believe it and apply it, folks, and God can solve whatever the problems are. We can have victory over our sin nature. We can have victory over the world. We can have victory whatever plagues us. We can go through the storms of life with peace, calm, tranquility, and happiness because God is in control. So what we see from all these verses about the inspiration of scriptures, number one, God is absolute veracity or truth in Romans 3.24, where Paul says, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and might prevail when you are judged. God is true. That's our starting point. Second, God is the source of the scriptures. 1 Timothy 3.16, breathe thou for God. So the source of the scripture is absolute truth. That which comes out from him must also be absolute truth. Third, therefore, conclusion, the scriptures are absolute truth. John 17.17, 17, where Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So, the rule is, if the premises of the syllogism are correct, that's one and two. The major premise in one, God is absolute truth. The minor premise, God is the source of the scriptures. The conclusion in the scriptures are absolute truth. If the premises are correct, then the conclusion must be correct. And if that's correct, it must shape our lives so that nothing is more important to us than internalizing the word of God into our lives. So often people want the easy route. God didn't give us a systematic theology. He didn't give us a question and answer book. God gave us the Bible in a format that would be accessible to every language, every culture, young and old, but we have to read it and think about it to derive our answers. It's a lifetime process. And it involves learning Bible study methods. So I suggest that you take the time to go listen to the Bible study method series. It's on the website. But we study. And the more we study, the more we learn. Uh, it corrects some earlier ideas that we may have had, but it takes time. Recently I was asked by somebody, how do you know you're right? Well, it's taken a lifetime of study. Sometimes I change on this little thing or that little thing, but generally my framework was set many, many years ago as a result of tens of thousands of hours of study. And I, it wasn't just because I took some pastor's word for it or some theologian's word for it, because many times I found when I got into the Scripture and did proper exegesis that they were wrong. They might have not been far off. You know, they weren't heretical, but maybe that wasn't quite the best way to interpret the passage, or maybe that wasn't quite on target. But And that's true for all of us. We grow and we change and we mature in our understanding of these things. We're not changing radically. We may mend a hole in the furniture here or there. We may uh, decide that we want this little color changed from a dark brown to a medium brown, th things like modifications like that. But generally speaking, we have the framework down. 
So often people want God to speak to them, just give them the answers. And I love this cartoon. Andy used it last week at the conference. I've used it before. You have the man praying, Lord, please talk to me. And so God hands him a Bible. I love what uh, Albert said a few months ago when he said, if you want to listen to what God has to say to you, open the Bible and read it out loud. That's it. Don't look for new revelation from people. People who say, well, I have a word from God are heretics and false teachers. People who say, well, God spoke to me are liars. People who say, well, I have a message for you from God are people that you should show the front door to. And we have too many people in our culture because of no teaching, because of sloppy teaching, because of heretical theology, think all of this is just fine and good and makes them seem a lot holier. Know your Bible. Read the Scripture. Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So concluding summary on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, the entire Bible, is inspired and profitable. Every verse, and that includes the genealogies, that includes the real estate section in Judges where you see the allotments of land to all of the different tribes. That includes all of the genealogical lists at the beginning of First Chronicles. All of these are all, they have a purpose. It's not all related to your spiritual life, but it's related to understand God's plan and purposes in Israel, God's plan and purposes for the church, God's plan and purposes, and to understand the whole the whole counsel of God. We as believers, as pastors, are to teach the whole counsel of God, not just the epistles of Paul, not just the New Testament, not just Psalms and Proverbs and parts of the Pentateuch. We are to teach the whole counsel of God. They all have a role. If Paul told Timothy that all the Old Testament's breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for uh, reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. He wasn't talking about something that hadn't been written yet, although that's included. He was talking about the value of the Old Testament. That was another thing Andy Stanley came out with was the church needs to divorce itself from the Old Testament. We don't need to know it. This is making a lot of us sick. This is terrible. We have to watch out for these false teachers. Okay, second, the entire Bible is God-breathed. All of it is God-breathed. And third, all Scripture prepares the believer and equips them for every situation in life. Every situation. You can't come up with a situation, a problem, a difficulty, that the Bible doesn't give you the framework for handling. And it almost always starts with prayer. Prayer for wisdom, James 1, 5, that you can handle it, that you can understand it. Third passage. First passage, first Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. Second passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Third passage, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus is the one who is speaking here. He is speaking in the um, Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So he's not destroying Scripture. He's not, he, but he is fulfilling the Scripture and then will give new revelation. He says, For truly I say to you, he's speaking uh, here to his disciples. He's not talking to his, to the Pharisees or the others. He is, he is explaining his mission. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter that in the Hebrew is called a yud. It's a, looks like an apostrophe. It's translated as a y. Uh, not the smallest letter or stroke. That's called a tittle. If you have some translations, they will actually use the correct verbiage. A tittle shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished because a small letter is important or a small part of a letter changes the letter completely and changes the word and changes the meaning of the, of the word. So this is what Jesus is saying here. Now, a yud here, it looks like an apostrophe. 
It's the smallest letter in Hebrew. It's transliterated as a Y. And then you have uh, two other letters right here. On the left is the Hey, and on the right is the Hate. And you can see that there's a little gap between the left leg of the Hey and the top of the Hey, and that gap is closed in the Hate. That little stroke that closes it is a tittle. Now, that can make a huge difference. In English, we might say that the difference between the letter O and the letter P is a tittle, just a little stroke. So if you change, if you have a P instead of an O, it changes the whole meaning of a word. The difference between a B and a D. So you have words like bog and dog. And so the difference is just which way the uh, B or the D faces, but it changes the whole meaning of the word, and that's the sentence that it's in. Or rug and pug, that leg on the R is left off of the capital uppercase P. You have words like lit, hit, and bit. So the difference between the lowercase L and the lowercase H is a stroke. That's the, that's the tittle. So there's a lot of difference between uh, something that is lit and something that is hit and something that is bit. So that all makes a difference. A difference between a lowercase c and a lowercase o is a stro small stroke. It's the, it's the difference between the word cat and the word oat. I want to get up in the morning and have cat meal for breakfast. Or you want to get up in the morning and have oatmeal for breakfast. See, that little stroke changes the entire concept. The word fun, you add a stroke, it's pun. Add another stroke, it's run. You have another, add another stroke, it's bun. These are different. Uh, these, these little strokes make a huge, huge difference. And what we're saying here is that inspiration extends down to the smallest letters. The smallest letters, the smallest stroke, changes the meaning of the word, changes the focus of the word. I've given many examples in some of my studies on Messianic prophecy of how the later Masoretes added uh, vowels to certain words that changed the meaning of the word so that it destroyed the messianic significance of that prophecy. And so this is the idea. Jesus is saying every letter makes a difference because it makes a difference in the word. And it makes a difference in terms of interpretation. For example, in the midst of one of the great con <coughs> conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus makes the statement in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Underneath that, I have the Greek word ego, which is I, chi, and uh, the semicolons aren't there. I did this originally with a different font. It didn't all work when, on the new, and when I put it in this slide. Hapater, the Father, in Hen, literally, it's a rough breathing mark there. Hapater hen esmen, the father are one. But the hen here is a neuter singular. Or one, neuter singular. It's not hes, which is the masculine singular that means one. So he is talking about this important concept. We're not one individual we are one in unity. See, if he had used the masculine, he would have said, we are the same person. But by using the neuter, he is saying something different. We're one in essence. That's why it's important to know Greek and understand these things. Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he does not say, and to seeds. Now, he's quoting here from a passage in Genesis 22 where God makes this statement about Abraham's descendants. It's interesting. You read it in the English. You don't catch this. But if you read it in the Hebrew, you read the Genesis 22 passage in the Hebrew, and I'm not going to take time to do it, 
the there is a question whether this is a uh, whether this is, a, is to be seed is that one of those words that's a a collective. It always appears as a singular. Sometimes it refers to many. Sometimes it refers to one. What happens in that verse in Genesis 22 is it's referred to by a singular pronoun. That tells you that apart from all the other uses of uh, of the word zera for seed in uh, that surrounding context, here it's talking not about the descendants of Abraham. It's talking about this one descendant. And so Paul picks up on that. That distinction tells us that it's talking about Christ and not about the the Jewish people. So we have some corollaries. Corollary number one to the principle of inerrancy and infallibility. Though every word is equally infallible and authoritative, not every word is equally applicable to every believer. You know, if you need to go down to the River Parbar, that's not going to be applicable to you. But the context is going to have implications for one's relationship with God and understanding God's plan and purposes in history. So every word is equally infallible, but not equally applicable. When Jesus tells Moses to go up on the mountain... It doesn't apply to anybody but him. But it has an implication for everyone because what's going to happen on the mountain is Moses is going to worship. So there's a difference between application, which is what God tells one person or one group of people to do, and the implication, which is a broader uh, construct which helps us understand uh, how it relates to our thinking. Correlation number two, if every word is breathed out by God, then it is responsibility of the pastor teacher to investigate and exegete every word. That means pastor teachers need to know the original language as well. Well, they need to study and study. Some guys can't do it. I understand that. They're, they're dependent upon the work of others. I have many who are dependent upon what I do. But you need to keep trying to learn the languages. Those who give up on the languages have failed. That is not what a pastor should do. Always pursue learning. Till the day the Lord takes us home, we have to pursue. I tell young guys, if you don't like reading, if you don't like studying, go dig ditches, go build houses, go be a doctor. But if you're going to be a pastor-teacher, you have to spend time reading and studying and knowing what's going on and knowing your Scripture, and it needs to dominate your life. It is your passion. It is what God has called you to do, and you must always pursue excellence. Vince Lombardi, I think, has a great quote that we must we will never achieve excellence, but our perfection. We, may, we will never achieve perfection, but if we aspire to perfection, if we pursue perfection, then perhaps we might achieve excellence. That should be emblazoned over the door of every pastor teacher to remind us that we are here to serve the Lord, to glorify him, and that is the pursuit of excellence. We'll never be perfect but we need to excel. Third corollary. If every word is breathed out by God, and then the Bible is absolutely and totally sufficient for salvation, excuse me, if every word is breathed out by God, then that end shouldn't be there. Then the result, the Bible is absolutely and totally sufficient for salvation, spiritual growth, in problem solving. Whatever we face, the Bible is sufficient. You may have to dig into it. You might have to read it a lot. You might have to study it. You might have to listen to a lot of tapes or uh, lessons on the Bible to be able to get to where you can comprehend it, but it's there. It is sufficient. Second Peter 1.3 says, Seeing that his divine power, see we studied this already in our study of Second Peter, 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. See, it's his omnipotence that granted us by way of grace everything, not some things, not most things, everything related to life and godliness that relates to our physical life and our spiritual life. For by these, that is, by his essence, his glory and his excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, memorized promises. This is a great time if people are at home, make up games, teach your kids, uh, memorize promises in order that you might become partakers, that is, to uh, reflect the character of God, the essence of God, being conformed to the image of Christ, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Corollary number four, if every word is from God to us, nothing should be more important than learning and applying God's word. That it should be the passion of our lives. That is our vocation. That is what we are called to. Now, some people have other callings. Some are called to be doctors. Some are called to be teachers. Some are called to be stay-at-home mothers. Some are called to many, many different vocations. But the ultimate vocation every believer is called to is to know the Word, apply the Word, and pursue spiritual maturity. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for all that you've taught us. We thank you that your Word is sufficient that even when we don't know what's going on, even when we're surrounded by uh, uncertainty, even when everything we hear is contradicted the next day, we know that we just live one day at a time trusting in you, fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave us, being a witness and testimony to others of your grace, communicating the gospel, teaching them about what the Bible says. Every one of us given that commission. Father, we pray that you would comfort us, strengthen us with your word, that we may be a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.